Good afternoon, Lord Paul. Good afternoon, Ajahn Masako. So thank you for taking some time. It's been a while since we've done one of these Q&A sessions. Um, so today is Saturday, the 11th of March, 2023. I was wondering today if you would uh, speak about something that's come up recently in some of our conversations where you say you prefer to use the word bhavana, which I assume is usually translated as practice rather than the word meditation. Yes, well, meditation is a word that, uh, you know, includes almost any type of mental training. And so uh, it's good enough, really. But Pawana is specifically the type of mindfulness meditation developing the path, the Eightfold Path. So when we when we talk about the sequence of Dana Sila Pawana or generosity, uh, morality and practice, and that means the practice of the Eightfold Path, where I use the English word meditation for samatha practices, concentration practices, uh, including vipassana. It's just my personal choice, really. Okay. So when there are, there does seem to be a lot of um, ideas associated with the word meditation. Like people have different ideas of what it is. It could be accurate. It could be mis conceptions. Can you speak to those? Because I'm sure you've come across how we can misconceive meditation. Well, it's become a popular word for some kind of mental training, and, and uh, which is, you know, quite good to, to re realize the amount of interest there is in yoga or other forms of mental exercise or training, rather than just intellectual acquisitions. So like in uh, Pali Buddhism, Theravada Buddhism, they divide samatha, which is concentrating on an object. You know, so like with the senses that we identify with, the eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, and and mind is uh, we we go out to objects to when we concentrate on them, and so if you choose the, like there's different methods of samatha practice. Anapanasati can be strictly uh, samatha or going to to the breath. That you're going out to watch the breath of the nostrils or the rise and fall of the stomach. And then uh, there's casinas and candle flames and and uh, Buddha rupas and on and on like that, that where you, you're meditating on an object that is an object of awareness. So it's a form of 
tranquilizing it leads to tranquility and uh, because you're you're training the the mind to just uh, fix on one thing rather than wander in in thinking patterns so the samatha meditation is is like a mental exercise and uh, it's recommended in the beginning when when people who've never uh, who couldn't possibly do pavana or insight practice you know need something to do and and something that they can see some result good results such as a tranquil uh, state of mind and eventually if you stick with it it'll lead to insight meditation and then bhavana is uh, or vipassana is that samatha then vipassana is is looking into the nature of things and it's not going outward to objects that we see here, smell, taste, touch, or what we think, but it's uh, internal. It's you're directing your attention inwardly at the thinking habits, the emotions that one experiences, and, and beginning to recognize the body rather than using the body to go out to objects of the senses were actually witnessing the, the nature of being conscious in the present moment. And this is, you know, to powerize the development of that. You were saying that using Anapanasati is like sending the mind out to an object, such as the sensation of the breath at the tip of the nose, right? assume the abdomen or wherever, setting the mind out from where? Well, you know, well, it's, a, you know, the senses on the body, uh, that's how we experience consciousness, how we identify ourselves with, with what we see, hear, smell, taste, touch, think, with our emotions, with what our body looks like. And we identify with that. That's our conditioning. And so, uh, when we when we operate from the position of a separate person, a human form that's separate, uh, and because the sensory experiences all create this sense of separation, the object is separate from this object, and. Uh, uh, and the you know we we inter- interpret experience in terms of what I think or how I want to interpret my samatha experiences. We can you know read the books on meditation, on concentration practices, and so forth, and we get a lot of ideas of how to concentrate the mind by focusing on a casino or a candle flame, or the breath, and uh, let me interpret it all from the way we're conditioned, how we're conditioned to, to explain experience in the present. And so where Vipassana meditation is 
not explaining experience, but observing. So it's not a, a trying to explain uh, consciousness, or try to define it, but to to uh, abide in it. Because ultimately, consciousness is, you know, there's a, we tend to identify with sense consciousness, but the senses are very impermanent, unsatisfactory. You can go blind or deaf or lose your sense of smell or taste, and you can lose your memory and all these conditions that you acquire, you can lose. But what, but consciousness itself, you can never lose. Uh, but if you're solely identified with sensory experiences, then that depends on how you, you know, how you've been brought up, how you interpret experience as a separate personality, what your religious conditioning says about it, what your culture, your social status, and, and all that we, we have been told that we are, you know, we, we operate from these habits, these conditions that are artificial, created by human beings after you're born, where a newborn infant is fully conscious form. And then the question arises, is the infant's body conscious? Is consciousness inside the baby? Or is the baby in consciousness? And then you're getting to investigating. Because a, a baby doesn't have a language yet. Doesn't know Pali, Sanskrit, Tibetan. Uh, doesn't have an identity as a boy or girl or black or white. It, it is a human form, the species of a human form that is conscious, but the consciousness isn't, isn't conditioned yet to think or to remember. So it, it just operates from instinct, you know, because the, uh, the animal species of mammals and that, you know, we, we, we uh, are born instinctual, self for surviving and procreating the species. So that's, that's part of the uh, condition of mammalian, our mammalian heritage. But consciousness isn't, uh, you know, uh, different from, from uh, a dog or a human being or a monkey or a mosquito. All forms arise in cease of consciousness. And that's what Vipassana is insight into this reality because it's against how we actually been conditioned to think and experience and explain experience. And coming coming back to that choice of words is interesting because you described like sending the mind out to an object of meditation in the same way that Bodun Atulo says sending the mind out is the cause of suffering. Sending the mind out from where? Where are we sending it from that it goes out? Well, these, these, we're experiencing consciousness 
which is impersonal. And to, and so we operate from me as a, as a separate person and practicing meditation by concentrating on those flowers. So I have to look at the flowers. Consciousness is, is the reality itself, but using consciousness identified only through the limitation of senses is a cause of suffering because we, we are missing the point. We're always seeking, you know, we, we, ima- we can imagine, we can think, we have uh, a lot of memories and we like maybe those flowers or we don't like those flowers. So when we look at those flowers, then um, we think that they're beautiful or they're getting, they're fading, you know, so we, we proliferate around them. But in samatha meditation, you're not, you're stopping the proliferation by just sustaining concentration on the object that you see. And this can be done through sound or through hearing. The senses are all instruments of the body, which is very impermanent and subject to, you know, in the process of change, is very nature's to change. And so when we're looking for stability, for love, for uh, ultimate truth, for God, however you want to put it, you're, you're, you're going out to objects or images you create. And so that is the, the actual cause of suffering. And the result of that is suffering. So, you know, when we spend our life, our human lifespan, looking for happiness through what we see, hear, smell, taste, touch, and think, then, you know, inevitably we, we, uh, we get confused, we, we can go blind, we can go deaf, we can lose our memory, and all the acquired conditioning is subject to change and the suffering is this identity with what is unstable and changing that's the cause of suffering just going out looking for happiness out there finding the right person where you live happily ever after having the perfect relationship or lots of money or being acclaimed uh, and by the world is a wonderful person and you know these are these can happen we many people have you know have the accolades of fame and respect but are they really is that the really a kind of permanent happiness you know so it's it's seeing when people you know, they oftentimes wonder about the word love in English because we we look to be loved by others, loved by God or loved by some other person, loved by our mother or father, and we want to love others. And we fall in love with 
in various times with people that we feel affinity with. But falling in love, you can also fall, fall out of love. Romantic love is is highly, uh, you know, is highly praised in modern in the media. But it's also, you know, its very nature is impermanent. Where what is unconditional love, or love that isn't changing, and then in terms of Pali Buddhism, that's Dhamma or absolute reality, because it's perfect, it's stable, it's and consciousness is is that. But we we can know this knowing by through witnessing what we are not. We begin to gain the confidence in knowing what we truly are is a, a conscious awareness and and that can be interpreted as unconditioned love or happiness uh, you know but the changing conditions of body you know enlightened masters still grow old get sick and die and um, you know so even what when we think that an enlightened master is is going to be happy on the condition level, you know that that is the, the assumption we make through thinking that happiness is something we've got to find rather than our true nature, which is conscious awareness. So this position of conscious awareness is a position we leave to go out into the world. Is that what you're saying? Well, that's the what is referred to in the um, scriptures as the gate to the deathless. It's through mindfulness or awareness that we realize this for ourselves. As long as we're looking for God or for permanent happiness or love, you know, expecting, looking and searching for love and uh, all these good things we imagine, you know, we're operating from imagination. And, uh, you know, we, we like the idea of of love, unconditioned love. It's a beautiful concept. But what is the reality of it? Or the word God in English. Is, you know, what is, what is that in terms of here and now reality? Is it, a, you know, is it, we imagine it as a patriarchal form in the sky or universal force or you know, you can you can imagine, make images, abstract images, or even create imagined images of, of God or goddesses or gods. But that's all. Those are all impermanent conditions that arise and cease. So then, the investigatory abilities, the conscious awareness, we begin to investigate. Is is God uh, separate from this body? Anything is up in the sky, or 
very high up there, uh, and, and you know, is and we can imagine God is perfect and is very high, where where we're having to identify with the, the unsatisfactory, unstable conditions of the body and the mind, and. Uh, so then, you know, we can imagine a perfect God, but what has that to do? It's an image that we might find solace by clinging to that image. But investigating in, in, in uh, Vipassana is to find out for yourself what God is. And in terms of Buddhism, Theravada Buddhism, you know, they, gods are impermanent. So they have a cosmology of gods, but they're also, by very nature, uh, things that change are born and die. So then what's left when the gods you imagine are gone is conscious awareness. And as you, and then the, the advice is to trust in that awareness. And so that's pavana, pavana, the Pali word for practice, trusting in awareness of, of just pure consciousness in the present moment is like this. And if you, if you really cultivate that, then you begin to see through the, your conditioning your sense of a separate person, your identities with your gender, with your race, with the nationality, all the things that cause conflict and prejudice and biases, and and that is around uh, the conditioned realm. And so, and that's why it's impossible to solve problems usually because people see things in different ways. You know, in culture, how you're brought up, uh, how you identify yourself, whether you're Generation Z or Baby Boomer or something, even, you know, your conditioning even in modern life is, can be very different from, you know, my generation. I was before the baby born, the silent generation. And Generation Z is, uh, baffles me sometimes because, uh, you know, I mean, my whole conditioned experience has been in the, 40, in the 30s, 40s, and 50s. And uh, then I've been a monk for so long that I've been away in monasteries not up to date with modern trends. So all this is changing and and so, you know, one generation might not understand another. And I notice in Thailand, uh, which is a very traditional Buddhist culture, but Generation Zen, is more uh, like protesting and opinionated than the silent generation of my days.
And of course, it's hard to understand. Like old people find younger people, you know, rather, why can't you just get on with life and make a living and get married? And why do you want, always want to assert yourself? And these kind of problems, like the woke idea of being woke and liberal or far right or left, you know, these are concepts that we strongly identify with and create and become, I mean, you know, if I'm on the left, then the right is a threat to me. Identifying with gender, with masculinity, then women are a mystery to me. Because my whole experience has been through, you know, the masculine identity. Same way go for women, when I try to understand men. So this is trying to understand each other through analysis, through conversations, through opinions, through sharing, all these kind of modern methods of trying to learn to get along or understand each other. There's nothing wrong with them. Some of them are quite skillful means. But with Pavana, you're getting right down to the very source, which is conscious awareness, which we share with with everything, which is not personal. So there's only one consciousness, but there are many, you know, all the forms, the dogs, the giraffes, the elephants, uh, all have eyes, ears, nose, tongue, bodies, and how they experience life, you know, is going to be formed by their species. And the human race is formed by its species, you know, identity. But we don't, we weren't brought up to think of ourselves as mammals. We are a special creation. At least this is how I was brought up. We were special, God created us specially. And uh, so we have this sense of being a special, not just a, a mammal. So, I mean, so we can look down on the mammalian world, eat them and so forth with, with a sense of, well, they're there for us to, to eat, to, to survive. And we can, in, you know, so we have views about vegetarianism, meat eaters, and and on and on like that. Some, you know, if you're a vegetarian, then you, you, you know, it's it's like you you're taking a stand against meat eating. Then those meat eaters see vegetarians as foolish or making a problem about something that's no problem or however you want to interpret it. But in terms of here and now, there's consciousness. And it's always here and now. No matter what you're thinking or feeling or what's happening to you. So this vipassana 
looking into the nature of things is <clears throat> taking our stand with conscious awareness to observe the changing nature of what we see, see, hear, smell, taste, touch, think, and feel. And, you know, so, you know, I would always like to ask myself, can, can one sankara know another sankara? Is, I know you, Ajahn Samedo, because you're, I can see you sitting across the room. And I know you for many years now. And I see so that that relationship is based on, on personal trust, on personal like or dislike, on views and opinions, different generations, different cultural experiences. And so, you know, that this is, this is, uh, how we can create uh, arguments are become disillusioned with each other because we don't see it in exactly the same way on the conditional level. But when we trust in awareness, there's no problem. How you think, if it's different from the way I think, I, it's not, I'm not making a problem with that. I know that that thought is impermanent, rises and ceases in consciousness. But the real refuge abidance is in the one consciousness that we share rather than in my personal views or your personal views. Some time ago, talking about the practice, you mentioned practicing silence which uh, I understand as being the same thing as coming back to the to conscious awareness. Conscious awareness is silence. It doesn't have the language. And uh, so when you realize that, like I realized that years ago, that when I began to really recognize silence, well, at first I always thought silence was when you had to control the environment. So you, you resist the noise and you wear earplugs and blindfold yourself and go into a sensory deprivation tank, just block off the sensory experiences. And when you do that, that, that after a while the senses aren't going out to objects. So there's the experience of silence. And so, um, but silence is, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's desirable when you're caught in the whirlpool of thoughts and emotions or in a noisy cacophonous scene. But the reality of silence for most people, is ignored. To, to be distracted from the silence to, to, you know, to objects of the senses like the television or telephone or the eating or smoking, drinking, all ways of, of uh, distracting ourselves from silence or from emptiness. But if you're 
take, take your refuge in awareness or in Dhamma, then the silence is, is no longer resistant. You begin to recognize it because it's the substratum, the, the background of everything where everything arises and ceases. So then when you realize that for yourself, then your whole aim is, the bhavana is silent. Not trying to stop the noise, but silence in the midst of the inferno or the cacophonous noises of the world. So, I, you know, this is where I talk about sound of silence, but it's not really a sound. You can call it a vibration or a cosmic pulse. You know, these are all words that try to describe it, but it's, it's, re, it's reality itself. Behind all the noise of the world, all every moment in the timeless reality of here and now, Silence is here and now. And then when you actually recognize, and I, then I found the actual Four Noble Truths teaching, the first sermon of the Buddha, very direct help in appreciating that. Because my personal conditioning, my personality is to fill a silence with something. That's what I've been as a person from early childhood been conditioned to do was to be busy working, studying, talking, watching movies, listening to the radio, watching television, they're all ways to, to be busy in life because they're noisy. They make sounds. <laughs> so, uh, you know, you're your personality doesn't want to be silent because it's conditioned to, to, to judge or criticize. Is that all there is, is silence? So what? Silence is nothing. You know, so on the intellectual level, the intellect may, your intellect may not like it because it likes romance, adventure, excitement. But as you're trusting in awareness, more and more you begin to abide in it, rest in it, then silence is, is, is bliss, is, is universal love. And so, when you begin to realize that, there's a definite shift from the worldly condition view, the false view, the artificial conditions that we make judgments about ourselves and others, and the whole problems, difficulties of life, and politics, and religion, and left and right, and male and female, and LGBTQ, and all this, all these identities seem irrelevant because you actually know and, and, and 
is called, you know, profound knowing. It's just not knowing about, but knowing reality, knowing Dhammaing directly because it's your, what you really are, ultimately what, what all, all beings are. Thank you very much, Paul.